0: One. basic hip. Welcome to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is Lisa Sokolov. Her new album is A Quiet Thing. From that... Here's my one and only love.
1: i splendor My one and only love. The shadows fall and spread their mystic tr-
0: My guest is Lisa Sokolov. Her new album is called A Quiet Thing. It's the follow-up to her album Presence, which garnered rave reviews and was named a five-star masterpiece in Downbeat magazine. And Lisa, it's a pleasure to have you here on The Jazz Session. Thanks for coming on.
2: Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: So somehow, and I don't know how this happened because I like to consider myself uh, pretty up on what's happening in the jazz world, but your music had kind of passed me by. And so when I was first sent this record, however long ago it was, uh, and I flipped it over on the back and looked at the song selection, I thought, okay, I will check out another album of, you know, 12 standards or whatever and see what happens. And I put it in and right from about the, I don't know, 10th second of the album thought, oh, I wasn't ready for this. And it just amazed me, and by the time we got to Old Man River and were invoking the names of these great singers that had gone before, I was completely captivated. And I, but the first question that struck me was, how did you arrive at the the kind of performing style that you now have? Because there certainly wasn't much to model it on. I can't imagine when you were when you were coming up as a as a performer.
2: No, I mean I I think that my singing is very much a product of um, my own. Investigations, um, it's not that I've kind of listening and culling from other places, but really my own path of, of singing and coming to meet what singing is, and which has been going on for some decades. I've been, um, I've been a teacher, a professor at NYU Experimental Theatre Wing for many years, and so I have the luxury of being in studio you know in a studio hours a week really investigating improvisation and what singing is and i and i, I think that i've really cultivated and brought forward a lot um, in, by having that time
0: you used that phrase what singing is twice what is it
2: what is singing uh... singing is this incredible hub it's a complex hub but it's a place where you know it's not like an instrument where you're playing on something you are the instrument so it's a place in which many levels of what it is to be human meet. It's a physical action. It's an energetical action. It's an emotional action. It's a conceptual action. It's a soulful action. It's living on many levels. But it's also a place in which we can meet what I would call the fundamentals of music in a very uh, personal but also very phenomenal way. So it's a it's kind of a hub in which many things all come at at the same moment. You, you can you can travel in a lot of places as a singer.
0: Is the act and art of singing a constantly evolving practice for you?
2: Absolutely. And undoubtedly absolutely. It's I mean, it's something I, I'm very much into listening both both listening in terms of what I'm hearing in my mind. But also listening into the body and really listening into these, in in some ways, very small aspects of what's contained within, whether it's improvisation or coming to meet a song.
0: Can you talk about uh, how you first uh, got into music? What was your first kind of exposure to to performing? I think it was, you were a pianist as well as a singer. Yeah. And Um, continue to be. uh,
2: Certainly singing music has been something I've done since I was extremely tiny and was a choral singer very young, and have always been someone who speaks through music. So I, I remember singing chorally you know, as, as a very young kid. And I also played violin as a young child and flute. And I studied piano for many, many years. My dad played stride piano. Um, my house was full of a lot of Art Tatum and Mabel Mercer. And I studied classically for many, many years. And so I started that way. I remember at a certain point deciding to stop playing piano. I stopped, I think, for about seven months. I heard a pianist and came rushing back to it with a really powerful recommitment. But singing has always been my path. My, I bothered my family a lot, singing constantly, as does my daughter. <laughs> mm.
0: How were you first exposed uh, to the music of John Coltrane?
2: I was in high school. I was a big choral singer. I also had a small jazz trio at the time. I had an incredible um, music theory and conducting teacher named Mr. Gilmore. I guess I should know his first name now that I'm a grown-up, but he was always just Mr. Gilmore Gilmore to me. And he um, turned me on to Coltrane and to Thelonious Monk. But the, the, the first hearing of Coltrane was really... You know, one of those stunning, shocking moments. To hear someone call out in that way uh, really just turned me around.
0: And that led you to make some choices about where you were going to continue studying music, right?
2: Yes, so that led me to Bennington College. Jimmy Garrison was Coltrane's bass player. Um, It was a very heavy... um, In terms of the the free jazz world Bill Dixon was there Milford Graves was there Jimmy Lyons was there And uh, Jimmy Garrison was there So I I decided to go there There were a lot of uh, students who Who were there to study music But there were also a lot of players Who had just left I think Cecil had just finished Cecil Taylor had just finished his thing in Ohio So a lot of players also gravitated up there to, to play, and I went in as a classical pianist, as a classical singer, but also as, um, they, had, they had a music department and a black music department, so I went in both, I went into both departments as an interdisciplinary major with a minor in philosophy, which kind of makes sense when you know me, and I, I continued studying uh, classically, but I really had to, had to completely erase in a certain way, or just start from another part of my brain when I started to really get into free improvisation there. And that was quite amazing.
1: Day, teeth and darkness, smoke and darkness Let's even without my mother Walks a to play a dance today Trip, trip, tap, tap, feet flap, taking turns Like a Swiss twist, thumping doors, bewildered floors, making a Lulu, ain't it cool? You swingin' like a dustbin. Come on in, the cricket's grand. Slap of a boot, I peel a suit,
0: steam. Can you talk about? uh Were you quickly accepted as a as a vocalist in the world of free improvisation? Uh, it seems to me there are far fewer vocalists doing that kind of thing than almost any other. Instrument once I, think once
2: I came into New York.
0: Uh, no, I mean even uh, even in the college days.
2: Um, I was accepted in, but I was accepted in more as a horn player. You know, I was I was a singer, but in in the ensembles. But I, but I was, I was put in the row with all the horn players. There was no mics. It wasn't like about doing tunes, and um, so instantly I was, which I think I really benefited from enormously. I was I was put in as one of the musicians. It wasn't like, oh, here's the band and here's the singer. So I was given horn parts, and I was I was running with those guys, which I think was really great.
0: And were you uh, kind of learning on the job, so to speak? I mean, it, did you I have was a, totally, a grounding? Totally,
2: totally learning on the job. I mean, I'd sung, sung standards before, but in terms of really the aesthetic of of the free jazz world and what it, and and the playing on that level of energetical playing was completely new to me. Um, so so I was comp- I was totally cracked open into a starting to hear in a different way. Okay. Absolutely. And and people Jimmy Lyons who you know was Cecil's horn player, he really um, took me in and wrote a lot of wrote music for me and really kind of helped, helped me really open my ears. And Milford Graves, the thing that we had very much in common was I've always been really interested in the role of singing as much wider than a cultural entertainment. In terms of, it's such a powerful point that really, both as a language, as a nonverbal language, but also as I've always been interested in the effect on the human body of singing. And Milford also has is very much interested in that. So we we did a lot of work together on the wider powers of, of music and so it was really very it was completely mind opening I remember I, I was also still singing opera at the time I remember my one of my coaches was a singer from the Met he came into a room one day and heard me and Milford Milford was playing full out and I was singing full out and my opera coach's teeth fell out and looked at me and said okay you've got to choose you can't do that and do this and and it was just abundantly apparent in that moment and i said i thank you so much but this is the road and and that was a very specific moment of choice so later in my life i did still return at different times to um to study with another opera singer and to really pull together what is is two, in my opinion two ways of working that I did over time really w- was able to bring them together, that there was not a contradiction in those two ways of working, that, that, that there is a technique that can fully address both, which has been something I've been interested in over the years.
0: And what did your opera teacher mean by, by posing that choice? In other words, the effect it would have on your voice t- to sing in both ways or uh, the physical um, effect on your body? Or
2: I suspect that, would be, that was probably what he thought. Um, though I have trained a lot of opera singers, and um, I've also worked with a lot of opera singers who've had vocal problems, and I'd, I don't, I don't believe that that contradiction exists technically. But I suspect that that was what he was. I, I suspect that's what he was saying. But I think also he's probably just astounded to hear that kind of energy um, musically coming from his student who had just finished singing the magic flute for him. <laughs> I suspect that was a little shocking But I also had another teacher at Bennington Which I think was profoundly formative Another um, singing teacher Who also had been an opera singer At the Met Whose name was Frank Baker And um, about four months Before I got to Bennington He had had a stroke And he lost all of his capacity for language And for singing But he still continued to teach And he and so studying with him you you were never trying to sound like anyone else. It was really about giving you enormous room to discover your own sound. And that also was profoundly informative. You put all of those things together and you also put a lifetime which has had the luxury of continuing over these decades as a teacher um really pursuing what is singing and what is the nature of sound and that's how a record like this kind of results
0: is there a certain amount of, of self-consciousness that you need to get past in order to perform the way you do on a quiet thing and uh, your other albums I mean you really you put yourself out there in a very uh, raw way and uh, although there's uh, you certainly can hear the the f- Grounding material on which these the songs are based—at least the the songs that are not originals to this album—you um, really take them far beyond, uh, you know, what people are used to hearing. Did you have to kind of say that's just okay to be to sing that way? Was that difficult in the beginning?
2: Um, I think, in terms of me and my singing, it was completely natural to me, and um, you know, I think that in terms of commercial circles or in traditional music worlds, you can hear Coltrane at that level of intensity on his saxophone but to hear a woman doing that is probably you know for some reason is is not what you normally hear and people can get a little bit like whoa probably because it's the human instrument I believe so in terms of the nature in terms of my nature of singing it's completely in my nature in terms of performance uh, I mean certainly I've lived with a certain level of pre-performance anxiety in life But I don't think it's because of how I sing. I think it's just because the nature of performance, the truth, especially as an improviser, is that you really don't know what what will come next. And so there's a certain level of aliveness, which one can translate into uh, pre-concert nerves. But in terms of singing like that, I think it's very much my nature. And people respond, especially when people hear it live. people are, are won over because there's something very human about it. So Though it, ca- it can be a little bit, wow, this is way beyond the boundaries of what I've heard a singer do before. So but you know that better than me. I don't know because I'm living in the center of
0: it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Would you talk about the piece Dream Haiku and its origins?
2: I mean, the truth of that piece is what it says in the piece. I, I was sleeping and I had this incredible dream which was a little more complicated than what I say in the song. But in that dream, um, I, w- I have dropped a friend off who's taking a writing workshop. And I walk in to bring my friend there, and they, they ask me if I want to write a haiku. And I sit down, and I write a haiku in, well, in a dream. And then when I woke up, I remembered the haiku that I wrote in my dream, which... I just thought it was so amazing on many levels. Number one, I loved the haiku, and I thought it was really funny and wondrous. And number two, that question of really who wrote that haiku. I was sleeping, and it came in a dream, and what aspect of self or not self wrote this poem that I woke up remembering in its entirety. I, I, I just love that. A paper flies, She is
1: lost Inside Longing Hey lady Green light I had a dream And in that dream, I wrote a piece of haiku. Five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. I had a dream and in the dream I wrote a haiku. Who, who, who wrote a haiku? A paper flies by. She is lost inside longing. Hey, lady. Green light.
0: Is the writing of poetry or haiku in particular something that you normally do? I mean, is it something that it's not I surprising? I write in-
2: poems, but I've never written haiku before. And just to have something, I mean, songs. Usually, in my experience, pop out whole. You know, I'm not someone who sits and works something and thinks, oh, well, let's go from the major seventh to the. I don't work that way at all. And my compositions generally come out entire and whole. And I've had it in my dreams where I've been playing the piano in my dreams way more fabulously than I can possibly play piano. And I've had it in my dreams where I've uh, seen paintings that have been mind-blowing but to just wake up with an entire haiku and the thing about haiku which is so funny is that it's so specific five syllables seven syllables five syllables that the sleeping mind was doing all those calculations and coming up with this little gem of a haiku I just I was it really was enticing to me
0: There are some really wonderful people playing on this recording with you will you uh, tell us about them?
2: Truly wonderful people Cameron Brown on bass um we've been working together for now a really long time. Uh, Cameron and Jerry and I have played together for many, many, many years. Um, John D Martino for many years, a little bit less than Cameron and Jerry. And Todd Reynolds and I played together in a big band some years ago, but this is the first project, you know, small project that we've done together. Cameron is just an amazing man and an amazing bass player who has enormous ears and a great heart and really understands the music. And, you know, both Jerry and Cameron have shown enormous commitment to playing this music at, I I would say, at all costs or at all fees, (laughs) is more (laughs) appropriate. You know, I mean, they really are there to do this no matter what is the context. And they've been really... Uh, devoted to helping this happen, remarkable players and and both of them, just remarkable ears. They, they can really listen, and this, this music it necessitates a certain quality of silence inside the music. Um, John DiMartino's also an amazing ears. His, his mother was a, a singer, and he's just he knows how to accompany a singer in a way that you very rarely find. And Todd Reynolds, as everyone knows, is just another remarkable improviser, listening-inspired musician. So I'm just incredibly lucky.
0: And there's also uh, an appearance on cello here by someone with whom you're intimately familiar.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that someone would be my dear son, Jake Sokolov-Gonzalez. He's playing Col Nidre with me, which was just so terrific. And he's been... He's been gigging with us, I think it was about two years ago, we had a gig and very last minute, Cameron uh, couldn't come and do the gig. And, you know, we we travel in different sizes of groups depending on what the gig is and the resources of the gigs are, so Cameron and I travel, just the two of us a lot. And um, so Cameron couldn't come very, very last minute. Every bass player in New York City, I mean every bass player in New York City had a gig. Finally, I got someone right before, but about three days before the gig, um, I was listening to my son downstairs, and we are a house full of musicians, and music is our second language, if not our first language, and we all play together all the time. And I was listening to Jake, and I went downstairs and said, Jake, do the gig with me. And so that was the first time, I think it was about two and a half years ago, that he started playing with us. In the end, we did get a bass player, wonderful Essiad Essiad came and played with us. But Jake also played with us. So that was the first time he came and played in quartet context with us. And he's been playing with us on and off ever since.
0: Well, it's been uh, a real pleasure to talk with you, and I'm, I'm so glad that uh, no more of your music will pass me by because it's, it's certainly been enriching to hear it, and I've, I've really, really enjoyed listening to the new album, which is called A Quiet Thing. Lisa Sokolov is my guest, and thank you very much for uh, coming on to talk today.
2: It's really been a total pleasure. All the CDs are on iTunes, and you can, you can get them through there. there. There are about four of them.
0: So I recommend everyone run out and do that right now. Oh, you don't even have to run out. That's the beauty of okay, iTunes. You can, you can run in in your jammies. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. It was really a pleasure. Thanks, Lisa.
1: do when I first laid eyes on you and it was plain and it was plain to see that you were mine you are my destiny with my arms open wide I threw away my pride I'll sacrifice I'll sacrifice for you I'll dedicate came my
0: That's Lisa Sokolov from her album, A Quiet Thing. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by allaboutjazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's also a group for The Jazz Session there, and I give away music to those people too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet. They've got a brand new album called Serious Respect. It's online, along with lots of great Respect Sextet music, at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. Thank you so much for being here. Please tell a friend. Also, don't forget to support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.